I worked on a Michael Jackson project called The History Album for pretty much all of 1994 and into 1995. And I thought it might be kind of fun instead of just rattling through track by track, uh, which I might do in the near future. So I came up with this idea that hopefully you'll find moderately amusing or entertaining, at least a little bit, called 10 Random Facts, Memories, and Tidbits from the History Project. My name is Brad Sundberg, and this is In the Studio, the podcast. Last week, I did kind of a a moderate deep dive into Michael Jackson's Dangerous album, which was a really fun project, you know, arguably my favorite MJ project that I worked on. The History album was a very different type of album. It was it was in a different city, and we'll get to some of that in a little bit. And it's maybe not quite as fun an album. It's Michael, you know, getting a lot of things off his chest and uh, kind of clearing clearing the air, you might say. But I'm not here to psychoanalyze songs like Scream and Stranger in Moscow and Money. Uh, We might do that in some future episodes. I might have uh, some special guests on and we can dig into that. Instead, I thought it might be kind of fun. (laughs) We'll we'll see. I, I just came up with what I call 10 Random Facts, Memories, and Tidbits from the History Project. Now, like I always say... I always preface this with, this is really just kind of a a fly-on-the-wall observation. I was there for the entire history project from day one to to the last day at uh, Bernie Grunman's Mastering. And uh, by no means am I trying to come up with textbook-level facts and all uh, all the info. It's just, this is meant to be a little more fun. And if somebody remembers things slightly different, eh, big deal. Um, but it was a pretty unique project that a lot of us were involved in. And I just kind of came up with, with my, there could be more of these in the future, but these, we'll call these the first 10, uh, random facts, memories, and tidbits from the history project in no particular order. So number one, why did we record this album in New York? So if you know anything about Michael's previous albums, they were mostly recorded in Los Angeles. Off the Wall, Thriller, Bad, Dangerous. Most of the recording that we did for those projects was in LA. And a lot of it was either at uh, Westlake Studios or uh, some of it was done at uh, Record One, Larrabee, Ocean Way, but uh, almost all in LA. The History Album was different, and we primarily recorded the History Album in New York. If you have been to one of my seminars, you probably know the reasoning behind that. But in early January of 1994, there was an earthquake in L.A. It was called the Northridge Earthquake. And it was a a pretty serious quake. It did a fair bit of damage. The, The epicenter was about four miles from Record One, which was the studio that we were scheduled to start the project in. And there's a lot of different uh, backstories uh, this is one of those things that I, I honestly don't have the exact 
I, I just don't don't have the facts exactly what happened. I'm sure other people have written books and articles and whatever. But the earthquake hit early in the morning. I think at 4.30 in the morning, something like that. And it was a pretty ferocious quake. And it freaked Michael out. And I, I think Michael was at his penthouse on Wilshire. And uh, it gave the penthouse a pretty serious shake. And the story goes that he really got nervous and jumped in his truck and drove himself up to Neverland and uh, just did not want to be in L.A. He was afraid that a bigger quake was going to come. So the city was basically down for a couple days. And I know it's almost hard to believe, but uh, there was no, no phone service. I mean, cell phones were still pretty new in 1994. And so even basic communication was really hard. But a couple days later, Bruce Swedeen called me and he, he always called me Braddy Daddy. And he said, Braddy Daddy, we're going to go to New York. We need you to come with us. And uh, Michael wants to do the record out of L.A. So uh, random fact <laughs> number one is uh, that we moved the entire project basically from day one from L.A. to New York. All right. Random fact number two. It was a really bizarre year in New York because if I remember right, they either had 15 or 16 blizzards. <laughs> For those of you that are not listening in the U.S. or do not live in snow country, a blizzard is a really bad snowstorm. And people smarter than me can tell you the difference between a snowstorm and a blizzard. But by my recollection, New York actually got hit with approximately 15 or 16 blizzards that winter. And some of them happened while we were there. So if you can imagine this, this little band of, uh, of Californians, kind of a wimpy Californians, get, gets transplanted to midtown Manhattan, and it's snowing. And I mean dumping snow. I mean like movie snow, walking down the middle of the street in, in like knee-deep snow. I'm not making this up. This actually happened on more than one occasion where we would try to get from our hotel over across town into the studio in just crazy cold weather. And it was fun, but it was just, it was so different compared to the way that we were used to living and working in LA, jump in your car, drive to the studio, roll the window down in New York, man, it was just blizzard after blizzard. So random fact number two is that when we started this project, they were finishing up a winter that had approximately 15 or 16 blizzards. Random fact, memory and tidbit from the history project number three. I've called this housing. Where did we stay? Well, first of all, how many of us were there? I, I probably should have done a really serious head count, but to the best of my memory, there were about 12 of us that uh, packed up and e essentially moved to New York. And it was one of those things where, oh, we're only going to go for two or three months. But if you've been around Michael Projects long enough, you already know that you're, you're in this for the long haul. So there were, I've got the list of names in my head, but I don't really want to go through all of them. But in essence, uh, you know, there was obviously Michael and his security team. So that probably would have been about five or six people, something like that. And Bruce and, uh, Andrew Sheps and uh, Brad Buxer and Eddie Delena and me and Matt Forger. Craig Johnson came a little bit later. Rachel, our production assistant, was there. 
and I'm probably forgetting somebody else and I'm going to feel really stupid. But there were about 10, um, I guess that's probably 12, 13 names, something like that, that basically moved from LA to New York. Where did we stay? So most of us stayed at a hotel called the Helmsley Palace. And it was on, I think it was uh, Lexington and 50th. It was right across the street from St. Patrick's Cathedral. And the Helmsley Palace, the first half of the hotel or two-thirds of the hotel is, is a beautiful older hotel. And then the top, I think it was called the Towers. So Michael and his security team were up in the Towers and the rest of us were down in the, the normal rooms in the hotel. And when I say normal, by 1994 standards, they were beautiful. I mean, they were just gigantic rooms for New York. And now the hotel, I believe, is just called the Palace. And it's a little... <laughs> there's no easy way of saying this. It's an old lady hotel. Uh, it was it was uh, built by Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Helmsley, Leona Helmsley. And she was pretty famous in the news, I think in the 80s or 90s. She was just a terrible person, just a, <laughs> a really mean person. And uh, I don't know. There were lawsuits or, or I don't know if she went to prison. I don't know. There was... But anyway, they, they built some some beautiful hotels. So we were at the Helmsley. There's no other way to describe it. We were a ragtag bunch. I mean, leather jackets and jeans and tennis shoes. You know, some guys with longer hair or whatever. And then every, all the other guests are, are just these posh New Yorkers. And, you know, people that are coming into New York, you know, to see Broadway shows for the weekend. And wear their minks and everything. And it was just fun. It, it was, we were so, we stuck out so obviously compared to everybody else. And we weren't, you know, we weren't jerks or anything, but we were just kind of this, uh, scrappy MJ crew that was there to get a job done, kind of mingling with all these, uh, all the New York, uh, wannabe elites. So the whole thing was kind of fun. Bruce Swedeen, Bruce and B stayed at, forgive me, but I think think it was the peninsula. And so it, they had more of an apartment and, and that was kind of Bruce's favorite hotel. And I hope I'm remembering it correctly. So I think they were more on the upper east side, I think. And the rest of us were at the palace, which kind of brings me, well, back then it was called the Helmsley Palace. Also, when Andrew Sheps was there, uh, if you don't know the name Andrew Sheps, uh, he's just a remarkable engineer. And uh, he's done just tons and tons of work with uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers and uh, Adele and everybody that you can think of. He's, he's had just a, an amazing career. And he was there with, back then, it was his wife, Debbie, and I believe they had their two kids. They really did not dig the, new, the, the hotel scene. And Andrew, Andrew's a great guy, but he kept saying, come on, I got my kids here, this is... And so they actually got him a little apartment. He actually stayed in an apartment that was owned by the Germano family, the hit, the hit factory uh, people. So I kind of went back and forth on if I wanted to get an apartment or not, but I would go back to LA. I was both Matt and I would go back and forth between LA and New York. So it didn't really make sense for us to get an apartment. But at some point, Andrew just said, I got to get out of this hotel. And uh, so he moved into a little apartment. Let's see. Random fact number, well, this is all part of, well, kind of, yeah, this is kind of number four. Michael started, I hope my memory is correct. Michael started uh, in the Helmsley Palace. He was up in the towers. And I think even he got tired of it. 
And so at some point, I swear this is true, he moved into Trump Tower. So he was, if you go to Trump Tower and look up at the very, very top, and forgive me, but I don't have the, uh, the exact number of floors in front of me, but uh, Donald has penthouse number one, which I believe is three stories tall. And then across the hall from that is penthouse number two, which is also three stories tall. And Michael rented penthouse number two. I don't know the arrangement, not on my business, but he moved into Trump Tower, I want to say in the summer, something like that. So that, that was where he was for quite a while. And it seems to me that at some point he left Trump Tower and wound up over the four seasons. But again, he kind of had his own uh, team that was taking care of him. We worked with him in the studio, but we didn't interact with him that much, you know, outside of the studio. But that does bring me to random fact memory and tidbit number five, which (laughs) this this one's almost a bit uh, uh, embarrassing or self-deprecating. But while Michael was at Trump Tower, he, he asked me if I could build him kind of a music dance room. So if you've ever seen a picture of Trump Tower, you might notice that it has all of these these windows, has a lot of 90-degree angles. I don't know, it's a very unusual-looking building. And until you're on the inside of Trump Tower, it, it doesn't always make that much sense. But once you're on the inside, it makes perfect sense. All of those 90-degree windows create corners, especially the top part of the building is every room many of the rooms have a huge corner view and it's just crazy. So you've literally got like a 180 degree view out of multiple rooms in your apartment. All right. So I just looked this up on Google Trump tower, according to my Google machine is 58 stories tall. So if I'm not mistaken, those top three stories, 56, 57, 58, are the two penthouses. Uh, one, one side is for Donald Trump and the other side back then uh, for a, a part of the album was for Michael Jackson. So Michael wanted this, this giant dance studio thing built in, his, in one of these rooms. So we, we pulled all the furniture out of a bedroom and we brought in a wooden dance floor. We probably rented it. I don't know. Somewhere we got a dance floor. And then we got a pair of Westlake, I believe they were either BBSM 10 or BBSM 12 speakers. I looked it up. The BBSM 10 speakers, which is what I think it was, weigh 200 pounds each, 198 pounds each. They're just amazing. They're some of my favorite speakers on the planet. And then I, I got him just a huge, probably a BGW power amp. And, and I think I I think we had a, a CD player for him, probably a CD player. And then we had like a, a Mitsubishi tape machine for him and probably a DAT machine. And so Bruce could actually do mixes in the studio. We didn't really do this very often, but we really could bring the original mix up to Michael's uh, dance room and play it for him if he needed. But generally we would just give him DATs or something and keep it pretty simple. We, we set up this music system. I swear this is true. And I, I don't get vertigo really, but when you're standing in one of those corner windows, 56 stories up in the air, I mean, and the building kind of moves. And 
And so you are way up, and you're looking straight down and straight out, and the whole city is at, at your feet, basically. So I'm up there with a friend of mine by the name of Jan Vitrovsky. And Jan uh, had a, an AV company in New York, and he somehow we met up, and I brought him over to help me set up these giant speakers because I couldn't do them by myself. So Jan and I are up on, I'm assuming it was like the 56th or 57th floor in one of these corner bedrooms. And we've got these huge speakers on speaker stands that are way too small. And none of this, this is really how it is. This is real world. You think everything is just finely tuned and uh, planned out weeks in advance. That's not at all how it works. Michael comes up with an idea and within like 16 hours, we're making it happen. So we had these giant Westlake speakers and on, these, on these stands that were made for speakers, maybe half this size. And we got it up on the stand and I'm looking at it and I'm like, this is not safe. This, this is a terrible idea. And I swear to you, as I was looking at it, I watched this 200 pound speaker roll backwards off its stand onto the floor and against the window. And my heart stopped. I thought, I am going to watch a 200-pound speaker crash out of the window of Trump Tower and spiral down to the street at who knows how fast and probably kill four people in a taxi or something. And all of this went through my head in about three-tenths of a second. And the window didn't break, obviously. Uh, those windows are much stronger than uh, rolling a 200-pound speaker against them. Credit to the architect and builders of Trump Tower. But it absolutely made my blood go cold because I thought, this is it. I've, I'm, I'm going to kill people in New York, and I'm going to spend the rest of my life in prison. And thankfully, it didn't happen. But that's where Michael was. So he was up in Trump Tower, and we built him. <laughs> and we got, the, we got some better stands for the speakers and... Uh, and everything worked out fine. Okay, random fact, memory, and tidbit from the history project number six, per diem. For people that are not in the entertainment industry, I'm going to teach you a new word, and that word is per diem. If you have any sort of a job where you travel for a living, you get something called a per diem, which is like per day. It's, it's a spending, whoever is paying you to be there is giving you some spending money to cover your meals. And, and per diems, they're, they're kind of in the entertainment industry, they're, there's kind of some standards, but for the most part, it's kind of a case-by-case, case, uh, depending on who you work for or uh, what the project is. And I've got to admit, I don't remember the exact per diem uh, that we had on, on the history project. I, I wrote down a number, and it's $85 a day, which I think might be pretty close to the truth. It might have been $100 a day. So here, here's how it works. This was really funny, at least it was to me. When you're working on a project like that, obviously they're putting you up in a, a really nice hotel. And it was great. And uh, Michael had a good relationship with the Helmsley Palace. Bill Bray set everything up for us. You know, so the room is obviously paid for by the production company. Then in addition to that, they give you money every week. And that money is to cover your meals, basically. But in the middle of all that, they also basically said, hey, look, if you're leaving the studio at 11 o'clock at night 
it's not like you can go out for dinner. So when you get back to your room, go ahead and order up some room service and don't worry about it. So you've got your room paid for, you've got room service paid for, and you're not going to take advantage of it. You know, you're not going to have steak and lobster or room service every night, but they were very accommodating to us. They, they weren't like going over the, the bill with us every week and asking us to justify every expenditure. So you've got your room paid for, you've got your travel paid for, you've got your room service paid for. Then every, I seem to remember it was like on Tuesdays, Tuesdays or Wednesdays. And this is going to sound really strange, but FedEx was still kind of a cool thing, you know, to to get a FedEx envelope was like, Ooh, FedEx. And there used to be, I, I swear this is true. I don't even know if this is legal, but it's too late for anybody to go after me. There used to be this FedEx envelope that would arrive at the studio and it was a thick envelope. And it would come from Michael's office in L.A. I hope I don't get anybody mad at me. And it was cash. I mean, it was a wad of cash. And it was all divided up. (laughs) I, I think it was all in little envelopes. And, you know, there'd be one for me, one for Matt, one for Craig, one for Eddie. Everybody... Everybody got their envelope of cash and, and it was our per diem. And, you know, so if you wanted, you can do with it, whatever you want. You know, I, I enjoy an occasional, you know, glass of wine or a, or a vodka martini or something, but I'm really not a big uh, bar kind of guy. It's just not my thing. But I mean, if the guys wanted to go blow it all in a bar one night, they could, if they wanted to, uh, you know, put it in their pocket, put it in their savings account. They could do that also. So, you know, I, I'm not going to say that I didn't enjoy that money, but we really did save a lot of that money. And part of it went to uh, uh, fund our, our, our kitchen remodel that year. So uh, we, Deb and I have kind of joked that was kind of our, our Michael Jackson per diem that uh, did a lot of the remodeling on that kitchen. So the other hopefully funny part of the, uh, the equation and I'm, I'm just being honest, I'm just laying it all out there, is that when you were at the studio, and this was very common in the 70s and 80s and 90s, um, after that, budgets started getting a little crazier. But it used to be, if you worked on a project, you're going to have to kind of follow my train of thought here. Let's say at noon or 11 o'clock in the morning, everybody wants cheeseburgers or something. So we're going to send a runner out to go get you know, a bunch of cheeseburgers. And let's say in New York, cheeseburgers are expensive. Maybe it comes to, we'll say $130 or something or $150, whatever. Well, then I would take that receipt and that would be paid for by the recording studios. That would be paid for by Hit Factory. It would be on their credit card. And again, I'm just telling this, you know, in just out of fun. I'm not trying to get anybody in trouble or anything. But then the hit factory, I'm probably going to, but it's too late. The hit factory would take that receipt and that would turn into a reel of tape. So then they would, oh man, I'm probably going to get myself in trouble. They would then bill the record company for a $150 reel of tape. That was not actually a reel of tape. It was a bag full of cheeseburgers for, for the guys down in the studio four to have lunch. But it was, it was such a normal thing. I mean, I'm not justifying and saying that it's completely ethical and moral, but that's just how studios operated. 
they're not going to give the record company a bill for $150 in cheeseburgers because the record company is going to say, we're not going to pay for that. But they're not going to question a roll of tape. So like it or not, roll your eyes or not, that's how it worked. So circle back to the per diem again. I'm not paying for my food in the hotel. I'm not paying for my food in the studio. That $8,500 a day per diem, whatever it was, was really just extra money, just pocket money. And so it was nice. I mean, it was very, it was generous of uh, Michael's production company to be that generous with us. So and I'm using the word generous twice, which is dumb. All right. So that brings us up to a random facts, memories, and tidbits number seven. <laughs> okay, this one. I've mentioned this before. I've talked about this in seminars a little bit, but I, I don't know if, if I've said it on a podcast or not. Michael Jackson's van. So the way I know that you think that celebrities like Michael Jackson in the mid-90s would be cruising around New York in the back of a limo. You might remember that uh, Brian Vibberts told the story about uh, Mariah Carey uh, riding in the back of a limo. I don't know if I've ever really seen Michael in the back of a limo. Um, that's just not really his style. I mean, maybe on tours or for special things or whatever, but I think it was Wayne and Marcus and Bill were his security guys. And they rented this 15, this white 15 passenger giant van could not have been more nondescript. It was just filled with seats and uh, no window tinting, nothing. It was just this big van. And Michael would sit, if I remember right, maybe there were four or five rows of seats, something like that. And a lot of times he would kind of sit in the middle, maybe you know two or three rows back, something like that. And that's how he would get from Trump Tower. In fact, at I swear this is true. At Trump Tower, they had, I think he had a private elevator that would go up to the penthouses or so he could step on his elevator and uh, go all the way down to the garage. I seem to remember he had to go out like the hotel delivery entrance or something. There, there was some weird way they had to get him out of the tower and out to the street to get to the van. And then from there, he could jump in the van and it was probably, I mean, in, in, you know, normal midday traffic, it was probably a 10, 15 minute ride across town over to Hit Factory on West 54th. And at that point, the Hit Factory security would open another door and they could drive the van right into a freight elevator and it could take him literally right to the studio. I, I mean, just especially on the, if he was working on the sixth floor, the van could literally go to the very top, uh, the sixth floor of the hit factory. He could step out and go through one door and he's in the studio. So that's, that's pretty rock star. That, that was actually really cool. But in this white 15 passenger van, once again, he pulls me aside and he says, can you build me a music system? I'm like, okay. So, we used a giant pair of Tannoy System 12 speakers. If you want to Google them, it's the gray ones. There were the, the wooden ones and the gray ones. I think in the van I used the gray ones. I, I strapped them into the very back of the van. I don't know, with a couple ratchet straps and seat belts. And then we got a big power inverter. And I think we had to run some special cables off the battery. 
And then I put in another big, like, Bryston 4B amplifier. No, no, no. I think in that one was like a BGW amplifier. And then we built this little volume control. I, I can still picture it. It was this little volume control, like, on a stem. And it, was, it just had this one knob on it. And it, it would kind of float behind the seat on this kind of metal, uh, flexible stem thing. And that was it. So he could put a DAT or something in. And that thing, it was just ferociously loud. It was unbelievable. That was the loudest van in New York City. It was probably illegally loud. So if you happen to be walking the streets of uh, Midtown in the in 1994, and you heard some van coming down the street with just great music blasting out of it, the music that you'd never heard before. And if you looked at that van, you would probably see Michael Jackson sitting there in his hat, grooving to his tunes, looking out the windows of New York, driving to back to Trump Tower or going to dinner or who knows where he went once the session was over. But that was all real. Um, that was him. No disguises, no blackened windows, just him cruising through Midtown in a big white van with a giant pair of Tannoy speakers in the back. Okay, random facts, memories, and tidbits from the History Project number, where are we, number eight. Oh, wow. Okay, I don't, I don't really tell this story too many times, but um, I've certainly never told it on the podcast, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, tell kind of a shortened version of it because it's kind of an interesting story. In 1994, you might remember a name by the name of Nelson Mandela. Uh, Mr. Mandela had been recently reinstated as the president of South Africa. Uh, he'd been released from prison, and uh, you can do all of your your homework on apartheid and, and all that that meant. And uh, Mr. Mandela was friends with Michael Jackson. And there was a song that Michael was working on for this project that was going to I don't want to give too many details away, but it was going to include some some spoken words from Mr. Mandela. This is it's true. So Matt Forger, one of our engineers, a very dear friend of mine, was commissioned to leave New York and uh, jump on a flight and fly all the way to Johannesburg. And he was scheduled to meet Mr. Mandela and record. Mr. Mandela delivering these words, whether it was going to be a speech or some sort of a poem, I'm not 100% sure. Again, you have to remember, back then we really didn't have cell phones. And I know for those of you uh, under a certain age that that's just like kooky talk, but it's true. I don't think anybody on that project had a cell phone. We all had pagers, 1-800-PAGENET. So we all had these pagers strapped to our belts but nobody had cell phones as of yet. We packed Matt up with recorders and batteries and tapes and microphones, and he had this whole cool rig that he was going to bring with him to South Africa. And it's a long flight. I think he was scheduled to be, it was going to be about, I don't know, 18 or 22 hours, you know, with flight changes and everything. It was a big deal to, to get from uh, JFK to, uh, to South Africa. Matt got to the airport, 
And Matt's been around the block a few times. Um, he'd been with uh, kind of in the Michael Jackson camp longer than I had. And before he got on the plane, he made one more call, I think either to Norma or Evie in, uh, in L.A., and he pay phone, you know, this is old school. So he's got to find a pay phone and I don't know, put a bunch of quarters in. And he called the office and he said, Hey, I'm just about to leave. Just want to make sure uh, there haven't been any changes, which is pretty common in MJ world. And whoever it was, either Evie or Norma said, I, I can't believe you're calling. This is, this is amazing because we just heard Mr. Mandela has, has canceled. He's backed out of it. And, uh, I, I have no idea why, but they said, just go back to the studio. You, you don't have to go to South Africa. So here we are in the studio, like eating dinner or whatever. And here comes Matt trudging back in with all his cases and microphones and DAP machines. And, and he was, you know, I think he was a little disappointed, but he was also pretty relieved that he'd found out that it had been canceled before he got on that crazy long flight. So, so he had the ticket in hand, he was ready to go, but Mr. Mandela opted not to be a part of the project at that moment. So, all right, random fact, memory and tidbit number nine. Um, this one really isn't that hard to research but I, I sometimes talk about the budget of the history album. The budget of the history album, from what I understand, is about $10 million in production costs. I'm not nearly smart enough nor insightful enough to explain where all that money went. We were in the studio for more than a year. At some points, we would have five, six, seven studios booked at the same time. So we had Jimmy and Terry working, we had Dallas Austin working, we had Teddy Riley working, we had studios on both coasts going. I mean, all the travel back and forth and hotels and apartments and producers fees and musicians fees and studio fees and tape machine rentals and on and on and on. It got to be an expensive project. Again, feel free to uh, double check me on this, but my understanding is that it is, we'll say, one of the top five most expensive albums ever produced in terms of the value of the dollar in 1994. So it was approximately $10 million, 1994 dollars that went into creating this album. And then, from what I understand, Sony immediately uh, spent about another $10 million promoting it. And that's where you get into the statues floating down the rivers in Europe. And uh, Brad Buxer and I have had quite a few uh, kind of chuckles about that. But there was a lot of promotion, arguably more in Europe than in the U.S., but uh, the budget of this, of this project was, was pretty staggering. And it was more than just us ordering room service a couple times at the, uh, at the Helmsley Palace. All right, the <laughs> uh, random facts, memories, and tidbits number 10. This one, again, is probably going to sound odd to you, but I'm going to try and explain it the best way I can. Ten years prior to this album, in 1984, there was an organization called the P 
Parents Music Resource Center, the PMRC, that was primarily founded by Tipper Gore and a handful of, uh, I believe, congressional wives. And there, there's, and there's nothing that I'm about to say that is meant to make fun of anyone, but it was, it was in response to there was a lot of rock music in the 80s and 90s that they found objectionable, and they felt that uh, what it came down to was basically a sticker, so that if a parent was going to buy an album for a, a child, what the PMRC, if I understand it right, their whole thing was there needs to be some warning to parents that, hey, there's some bad words on here or some of the content on here you should at least be aware of. So it's you're not just blindly buying music for your child, having no idea what's actually in that music. Now, this can open up a whole debate on free speech. Uh, in fact, of all people, John Denver, D. Snyder, and Frank Zappa, feel free to Google the three of them, three guys that probably wouldn't have a whole lot in common in any other uh, walks of life other than they were remarkable musicians, but they, they were pretty staunchly opposed to this. And you can do all the reading and debating you like. I'm just kind of giving you a very quick recap. So what it came down to was if an album had a certain amount of profanity or sexual content or whatever, it might get one of these stickers. And then it comes down to who decides what album gets the sticker and what album doesn't. And I mean, how is all this regulated? It gets very First Amendment-y in the U.S. about uh, free speech uh, versus constraints, if you will. So I, I swear this is true, and, and you can roll your eyes at me if you like, but but this was really the first album that I worked on with Michael where he dropped the F-bomb a couple times. And if you listen to Scream, there's a few choice words in there. And then, um, you know, they, they don't care about us. That's another whole topic, and I'm not going to get into that right now. But it was primarily Scream where um, he's, you know, stop effing with me. And he says that a couple times, and it's pretty... He, he does it very rhythmically where, you know, it's kind of, it's left out, you know, for a, a bit of interpretation. But so we were back at record one and uh, back in LA and, and I was working on some of the edits and there, there was just a lot going on. This was at the very end of the project. And I, I happened to be working on scream and I kept hearing, stop effing with me, stop effing <laughs> with me. And there's a little lounge at record one. It's behind the little sliding glass door. And I happened to be working in that little lounge and Michael came in and all of this. How do I say this? Uh, how do I say this? Right. I, I'm probably a bit more tuned into current events and news and maybe even, uh, just general awareness than, than Michael might be at any given moment. Michael's tuned in the stuff that I don't even understand, but I'm probably tuned into a bit more, you know, just what's going on in the world. So I mentioned to him, I said, are you at all familiar with, <laughs> with Tipper Gore and her, uh, her whole, uh, PMRC and all that. And I, and he, he really had virtually no idea. And that, that's not to make Michael look like, you know, an uninformed guy, but it, 
it just wasn't something that he'd really paid a lot of attention to. And I said, look, I said, the only reason I'm mentioning it is I don't know if you want to have, I, I said, I don't know what the parameters are, but I don't know if you really want to have a, a, you know, a parental advisory sticker on a Michael Jackson album. You know, I'm, I'm just picturing all of these good-natured uh, conservative aunts and grandmas across the country who want to buy their granddaughter the new Michael, Michael Jackson album, and there's, there's a warning sticker on it. And I said, look, man, it, it's, it's none of my business, but I think you may just want to ask a question or two about it and just make sure there's not going to be a problem because I don't want you to get T-boned or sideswiped. And I really wasn't that worried, but you just don't know. I mean, in some circles, having that sticker on their album would certainly be a badge of pride. But with Michael, I, I just wasn't sure if, if that was a path he wanted to go down. So I'm not saying that I had any influence one way or the other, but I at least wanted to kind of clear my, my conscience a little bit. So anyway, that is my, we'll call that random facts, memories, and tidbits from the history album of volume one. Uh, when you're on a project for more than a year, there's a lot more than that. But I, I hope you got maybe a chuckle or two out of that or learned something. It was a remarkable album and it was an amazing project to have been a part of. So we're going to, uh, we may revisit that again in the future, but uh, I thought it might be kind of a fun little diversion for you. So have a great week. Stay safe. Thank you so much for tuning in. Tell your friends. I really do enjoy doing these. I've got some, some cool episodes coming up in the future. And I will talk to you soon and hopefully see you back in the studio. Take care. In the Studio, the podcast is produced by Maddie Sundberg. Graphics and creative input by Andy Healy. Special thanks to Golden Age Project and Tributaries Cables. My name is Brad Sundberg, host of In the Studio, the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.